Well, good evening, and good evening to you, those to those of you that are joining us online. I uh, was remembering a trip that we took to Israel a number of years ago. There's a um, it's an empty room inside a cathedral. It's on the lowest level of the church, and there's literally nothing in the room except for one really thick pane of glass in the wall, just a, a window that allows you to see the rock, the bare rock of the hill that the church is built over. Uh, a couple of levels above, uh, it's a little different. It's, it's elaborate and it's usually crowded and uh, lots of space. And uh, there's a window there as well. It's in the floor this time so you can see the brow of the hill. And that hill is split in half. The, the heart of the earth is literally broken in two at, at that place. And um, that place is really, really significant. It's significant to tonight. And that's why we were there. In, um, in Matthew's retelling of Good Friday, Jesus is on the cross. It says, about the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And at about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, and then it goes on for a little bit. And then just a little bit later, it says, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. There was an earthquake when Jesus died that split Calvary. And when you go to the church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is almost certainly on that spot, you can look straight into that rock and see that it's divided right there. And I find that really significant, not just because it ties in with the scripture text, but because it actually ties in with what happened in that place in that time. That is a dividing moment. That's where all of human history shifted, and it would not be a place that you would normally spend much time with if it weren't for the fact that the church was there, if it weren't for the fact for all of the ritual that was attached to it and all of the ornate uh, trappings around it and the, the crushing crowds, it would just be another limestone outcropping in this many miles long ridge in the middle of Israel. But it is a place that we went to multiple times while we were there just to spend some time in that place meditating and thinking about what it was that Jesus did. In fact, one of my daughters uh, took a, uh, a picture of herself from when she was younger and in one of the rare moments when the upper chapel uh, was empty, she said, can you take my picture real quick, Dad? And so she went and she knelt down next to that window in the floor and she placed this picture of her younger self on top of the brow of the hill, if you will. And it was a picture of herself from the time that she had trusted in Christ. And I took the picture. It's a precious picture because it, it's this reminder that in that place, her life was split in two, into before and after, into a life that was just attached to this temporary, momentary place and to a life that's now founded in an eternal reality. 
um, from being one who is just kind of, if you will, alone in this vast universe to being one who is eternally embraced in the arms of God. Right? That's the dividing that happened in her life and split it into before and after. It happened for me as well, and I know it has happened for many of you. And my prayer is that tonight, this would be a a dividing point of sorts. For perhaps some of us, maybe for the first time, the reality of what happened on Good Friday sinks in, and God takes our before and makes it just that. That was before, and now here's, here's the after. Here's the new thing. For the rest of us for whom that's already reality, my prayer is that that there would be a fresh engagement with what Jesus did that maybe will cause from the very depths of who we are a, a fresh worship to just kind of well up within us. We've been in our, um, well, in this, in this brief series here in um, Palm Sunday tonight and then on Sunday, kind of launching from a text and, and looking at some other uh, other scriptures that led to it. Um, on Easter Sunday, that first Easter Sunday, uh, Jesus is actually walking on a road to Emmaus with some of his disciples, some of his close friends, but they don't recognize him. They're being kept from recognizing him, and so the conversation gets to unfold much more naturally, and it's interesting what happens. And along the way, the conversation takes a turn, and Jesus just starts to address them more directly, and in that process, even gently but firmly corrects them, and as he's talking to them, he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Why are you confused? You've got expectations that haven't been met. You're, you're leaving Jerusalem crushed. Your lives have been crushed. Your dreams have been crushed because you expected certain things from God and his Messiah, but he never promised those things that way. And he's been speaking to you and you haven't listened. And he says, you're, you're foolish and slow of heart. And in that process, then he's going to enlarge and change and, re- and refocus their heart. But then he says these words, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? On the hill of Calvary where Jesus died, that's the dividing point for all of history and God was preparing for that from long before and he was talking about that long before Jesus ever showed up on the scene and Jesus is pointing his disciples to that and helping them kind of catch up with what God is doing, right? At, at the cross, um, it, human history was split into before and after. Our calendar actually literally divides in the life of Jesus. And just because the calendar dating is slightly off, it doesn't change that it is attached to his life. Just because uh, in, in our more broad-minded world today, we don't want to be too Christian, so we call it the common era and before the common era, which is, that's fine, it's still anchored to the life of Jesus. Jesus is the dividing point for human history. And what happened at the cross is that epitome moment, that paradigmatic moment when everything shifted and history turned into before and after, and humanity was split in two as well, right? There are those who are redeemed and those who are lost. There are those who are traveling the broad road and there are those who are on the narrow way. That's what happened because of what happened on on Good Friday. And, and Jesus said to his disciples, that shouldn't have thrown you for a loop. You should have seen it coming because God's been talking about that. In fact, we're gonna celebrate communion in a little while. And at that very first communion service, the one that happened the night before the crucifixion, when Jesus took the, the Passover meal and reappropriated it and said, here's the ultimate redemption and the ultimate freedom that comes and a new covenant that's coming through my blood. When he took that, 
right before they left the room, right before they got swept up into the, the, the flow of events that were coming along, that torrent of God's eternal plan that just seemed to flow so quickly from the moment they walked out of the room and, and, and for the disciples it seemed like everything was unraveling. Before they did that, he said, here's what has to happen. I have to fulfill, and he quotes a section of scripture, Isaiah 53. So if you have a Bible, I wanna just look for a moment at Isaiah 53 as we think about Good Friday and the cross because I think that was really important in that moment. That's what Jesus wanted in their minds and I think it it helps us to grapple with um, the significance of, of tonight. Good, it actually starts in chapter 52, verse 13. Other than the Psalms, almost all of our scripture, the verses and chapters were added later. So um, sometimes they got it right, sometimes they got it wrong. This is one place they got it wrong. It's, it's, it's pretty universally agreed. 52.13 through 53.12, that's the section. So we're gonna pick it up in 52.13. There's something you can look at on your own, but I just wanna point out to you, it sounds really exciting to start, and it kinda ends really exciting, and everything in the middle doesn't seem to match, which is kinda what Good Friday was. If Jesus comes into the town on Palm Sunday, it's gonna be great, here's the Messiah, and then Good Friday, what happened? And then Easter Sunday, oh, wow, everything shifts. So in in chapter 52, 13, it talks about him being exalted. In chapter 53, 12, it talks about him dividing the spoils as the conqueror, and everything in between sounds like, wait, what? And that's because of how God's plan is going to unfold. 700 plus years prior to that night when Jesus points his disciples to this passage, Isaiah was talking about it. 700 plus years, maybe 750 years prior to the cross, Isaiah says these things, and they are so striking. And I, I wanna just kind of read down through it and have the imagery settle on our hearts. This is a night when um, we actually wanna slow things down and actually want the heaviness to sit on us. There's hope in the heaviness, but we really need to let the heaviness of Good Friday sit on us. It didn't seem good at all to the original disciples seemed like, how could this possibly be good? And it's easy for us to say, how could the brutality of the cross be good? The reality is, it's through that brutality, actually, that good came. It's, it's a well-named day. It is Good Friday. The cross itself is, is incongruous to our minds, but God is doing something deeper. There's something extraordinary that's going on and for all of the brutality and all of the harshness and all of the injustice, which Isaiah's gonna highlight, God is still working something deeper and working something good. So if you follow along, Isaiah 52, 13 says, behold my servant, that's, he's talking about the Messiah, shall act wisely, he shall be high and lifted up, he shall be exalted. And then it starts to shift tone. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. In other words, he didn't even look human. Right now, Isaiah is, this is a, this is a poetic section. So he's, he's just saying, it is so bad, it is so terrible, it's as if this is true, and, 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 and Jesus, the, the Messiah, is going to be so brutalized, he won't even be recognizable. So shall he sprinkle many nations, kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has been told has not been told them, they see that which they have not heard, they understand, Who has believed what he's heard from us? So there's this revelation that's going on, but who's believing it? 
And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? God's saving, powerful arm. Who actually is seeing that? And even as he's going to unfold his out, it, it's confusing. This isn't how I would expect God to work, but he's working this way. Now he goes back to talking about Messiah, about Jesus. For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. There was nothing about his physical appearance that would attract us, nothing about him that would say, he's the guy, there's the one, follow him, he's amazing. In fact, he's rejected, he's mistreated, it's injustice that's unfolding in this passage. Verse four, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. He's our substitute. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? In other words, nobody even paid attention. Nobody even gave it a second thought. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he'd done no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. In other words, through this suffering, that's where the good's going to come. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge, that is his knowledge of God, his relationship with God. Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. When Jesus talks to his disciples and says, God's been talking about this all along, he helps remind them that God is always at work. No matter what it looks like, God is at work. And God was at work long before Jesus went to the cross and he had a plan that he was perfectly and, and completely unfolding in that place and in that time. Isaiah's words are 750 years prior approximately. And he was already at work. He was already planning. He was already going to carry this out. He was at work every moment up into Good Friday. And he was at work every moment of Good Friday all the way through Easter Sunday. And he's been at work every moment since then. And he was working in those moments so that we could be in this moment. So that we could be gathered here in the name of Christ. Brothers and sisters in Christ. His family. No longer lost. No longer separated. No longer trying to figure it out on our own and stumbling along. Not that we've got it together, but we're his, and we're family. And here we are in this moment remembering, 
Here we are in this moment lamenting, lamenting our lives, lamenting our world. And here we are in this moment celebrating God's grace. That's, that's part of God's plan all along. 750 years prior to the cross, it, he was already talking about it. And as these disciples are trying to process it, he's reminding them, God's been at work, God is at work, and God's at work right now. And tonight what I would like for us to do is just take a moment and try to look at the cross afresh without filters and without flinching. Because if we see the cross as it really is, we see two very profound things about God and his heart, and particularly his heart for us. Right? Because when I look at the cross and I let it really sink in, one of the things that I have to come to grips with is sin matters. Sin matters. It cost that. And that's horror. There's literally no more horrifying moment in history than the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It's horror. And that's what sin costs. Sin matters. But the second thing I see, especially as I let that sit on me and realize that comes from me. God had to do that because of me. As I let that sit on me, the second thing that I realize is I matter. I matter. You matter. You matter to God enough that you are worth a son. And the cross shows us both of those things. And when we, when we tamp down, when we blunt, when we kind of shrug off the intensity of what the cross is and the meaning that it has about sin, we also diminish God's love and his grace. And we miss the freedom that comes from saying, it doesn't matter how bad I am or what I've done, Jesus is taking care of it. There is nothing that will ever separate me from the love of God because he went to that extreme. The cross shows me that. We don't often look at the cross straight up, right? The painters kind of skirted around the edges. Sermons and lessons tend to do the same. I know because to really just delve in would overwhelm most people. It's like, oh, I can't handle all that. Films, same thing. I do remember the first time I saw The Passion of the Christ, which is a film that tries not to pull too many punches. Sitting there in the theater and, and, just, and just seeing the brutality. And remember, Isaiah said he was brutalized more than anyone else. He wasn't even recognizable. And, and that's unfolding on the screen. And with each, each new brutal moment, it's, it's breaking me down until finally, there in the theater, I'm just, I'm just sobbing. I am just weeping and sobbing, and all I can say is, God, I am so sorry. I am so sorry. That should have been me. Over and over and over again. And it doesn't capture the intensity. It captures, perhaps, the physical intensity of the cross, and that's pretty brutal. Hard to watch. But I think the spiritual reality of bearing the sin of the world and the judgment of God has got to have been greater. And there's no way to capture that. When Jesus cried out and said, Lord, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. He's, he's being very specific. There's nothing ambiguous about it. He's using language that was well-known, biblical language. It is the cup of the wrath of God. And he's saying, Father, I know. 
I know that to deal with sin, to rescue people, to pour out our grace and our love, we also must pour out our wrath. And I know that's why I'm here. And I am willing. But Lord, that is a heavy thing to contemplate. To drink the cup of your wrath. And the reality is, I was supposed to be for me. We live in a culture that wants to kind of tamp down even the idea of sin. And if if we're going to take Good Friday seriously, if we're really going to worship God and respond to God and understand his love, we we can't do that. We can't can't look at sin as as just kind of the antics of people who are fundamentally pretty good. We can't look at it as um, bad behavior. We can't we can't see it as um, held captive by whatever the latest construct of our, of our culture is. We, we, can't, we can't have this attitude that says, well, you know, you've got your truth and I've got my truth and it'll, we'll, we'll figure it out. It'll all work out in the end. Those are all lies. There's no reason for the cross. The, the brutality and the ugliness of the cross doesn't make any sense if that's true but I'm not comfortable facing how messed up I really am and what that really means, the implications of that for my standing before God. But this is the time when we have to face that and face it straight up. Sin matters. The things that I allow in my life I can't wink at them. I can't just bypass them. Here's here's the reality. Sin is cosmic treason. Every sin. Great and small. In fact, because it's cosmic treason, there's no such thing as small, actually. When I take the attitude that says, I get to call the shots. I get to decide what matters. I get to pick right and wrong, set the course for my life figure out what the winner is and what's not. And I get to do all of that based on what I feel like without regard for what God has said, without regard for his will and his kingdom. It it may not be, it may be unwitting, but I'm really saying, I'm really shaking my fist in God's face and saying, you're dead to me. I rule here. You're dead to me. I rule here. That's literally what I'm doing. That's why the cross. That's why the wrath of God had to be poured out. And in a night like this, when we're willing to at least slow it down a little bit and willing to not just be chipper and cheery as we look at the word of God and say, wow, there's some heavy stuff. We don't want to try to squirm out from under that. We want to let that sit heavy because as it sits heavy, And we say, wow, sin really does matter. It really is ugly. It really did cost extraordinarily. Then we begin to realize, and yet, God was willing to do that. God was willing to sacrifice his son for me. And the son willingly went there. He says, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down and I'll take it up again. I am more than willing to do that for you. I have uncompromising standards 
I cannot water them down. I cannot overlook. I cannot pretend. I have uncompromising standards, but I also have incomprehensible mercy. And in the cross, those two things come together. The cross is God taking my sin fully seriously and taking me seriously too. And saying, you matter. You matter. It says in Isaiah that he crushed, the father crushed the son for my sake. He crushed him so that he could embrace me. We're told that the son willingly drains the cup of God's wrath. And everything that went with that, he did that so that I could be restored. And when he rose again, which we'll celebrate on Sunday, when he rose again, he offered me new life, eternal life, abundant life. And he offers that to everyone. That's how the world gets split into before and after, when I embrace that, when I respond to that. That's why the verses that are so popular, so common, deserve to be so. John 3, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of of the only Son of God. It's God's love that shows. And the fact that my life cost that and sin is that repugnant to God just highlights his grace and his mercy and his love. How could anything separate me from God when in my most rebellious place, my most rebellious state, he still said, I'll I'll die in your place. And the Father said, I will sacrifice my son. I love you so much, I will send my son, and you just need to respond and trust. You just need to respond and trust. He didn't come to condemn, he came to rescue. If you don't trust, if you're you're still trying to be God, if you're still waving your fist in my face, unwittingly though it may be, and saying, I call the shots, you stand under condemnation. But if you trust, You're forgiven and received, and you become my child. You're no longer the enemy. You're not the servant. You're my child. That's what Good Friday shows us. So I I would like to ask for two different kinds of responses as you ponder this. One is perhaps there are some here who have not yet surrendered, right? Surrendering to a God who would do that to pursue is not a risky thing. Not surrendering to a God who had to do that to pursue is death. That was the one option. Wrath had to be satisfied. And he says, but it doesn't have to fall on you if you trust me, because I love you. Surrendering to him isn't really risky, but it's hard. It's really hard. It's counterintuitive. I have to let go. Right? I have to come to the end of myself and say, I don't believe you owe me anything. In fact, actually, I believe you owe me judgment. I've sinned. I've fallen short. I'm a mess. I don't live up to my own standards. I certainly don't live up to yours. And I know there's nothing I can do about it. I just know there isn't. I try, and it doesn't work. And I know perfection is what you demand, and I'm so far, I'm out of the game already. My only hope is Jesus. You sent him because you love me. He did it. You said that took care of it. I believe he died in my place. I believe he rose again. 
Please forgive me because of what he did. Accept me because you love me. I surrender. Blind, blindfolded, hands up, surrender. I was talking to a friend this last week, and he was trying to get his head around this, how it works, and, and, and it just occurred to me, maybe a way of thinking of it is when you learn to float in a swimming pool or in the ocean. <laughs> if, if you try to float, if you work at floating, you will fail, right? You can't make yourself float. You have to surrender to the water. It will support you. But as long as you're working, you're sinking. You just have to let the water do the work. Faith is like that. It is surrendering to what Jesus has done and saying, you got to support me or I'm going down because I can't make this work. That's what Good Friday's about. And if you're here tonight and you haven't responded to the gospel, I'd love to talk to you some more. You can actually respond right there. It's just a matter of your heart, surrendering and trusting, saying, God, I believe I need rescue me please. I'd love to talk to you. Kyle already talked to you about those cards that are in the back of the seat. You can hand one to the ushers on the way out the door. We can follow up and have more conversation. I'd love to be able to do that. I know a lot of you have already responded that way, so let me just give you this as we start to move back into some worship and singing. It's easy in the midst of everything that goes on to kind of blunt grace, blunt sin, blunt everything, and just kind of do life. And our worship becomes very flat, kind of just pastel colors, nothing vibrant, because we're just kind of living at the surface. It's good every once in a while to just say, God, show me my sin. Show me my brokenness. Show me what a failure I am. Not because I want to sit in that and feel miserable, but because I want to understand that you love me. And when he takes me to the depths, and I see how utterly a mess I am. And he says, it's okay. I got this. There's so much freedom in that. And there's so much joy in that. And the invitation is that this season, especially as we move through the pain of Good Friday, and on Sunday morning, we come and we celebrate, that we would celebrate boisterously and vibrantly, and even in the heaviness of this moment, even the songs that are a little more somber and minor key, there's still a joy that can run through that, that says, God, I know this is all true. I know that I'm so broken. I know that I failed in so many ways, and I know you love me anyway. I don't understand that, but I embrace that, and I celebrate you in that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, may we maybe just a little bit more by the power of your spirit plumb the depths of your grace. May the heaviness of the cross sit on our shoulders enough so that the beauty of your grace can be revealed afresh. And may we worship you. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.